Good morning, church. It's good to see your shining faces this cloudy fall morning. We had to bump on the heat for a minute this morning, which I think is a first for the season, just to take the, the, uh, the edge off. Uh, as we begin, just a couple of announcements. Um, in your bulletin, you'll find a, uh, a leaflet there for October coming attractions. Um, one of those is Operation Christmas Child, and we're going to have someone from Operation Christmas Child coming and sharing. Um, I guess that's next Sunday, um, and so we'll we'll start distributing boxes at that time. So get start getting excited for Operation Christmas Child. That's coming up, uh, and there's also a ladies' night out coming at the end of the month. All the details are there at the bottom of the sheet, and you can talk to Donna about either of those things. She's the sort of the mastermind there. Um, be in prayer for uh, Luther and Dottie and the whole fire department. There was a, uh, a vehicle accident this morning, so that's where uh, Luther and Dottie are. Um, and so be praying for them. When, I, when Dottie called me this morning, she said Luther was using the jaws of life at that moment. Oh, wow. So um, be praying for, for their safety. And I think we had one more announcement from Dean. I just wanted to remind um, everybody that we had our pulpit committee meeting yesterday, and I think that should be our last meeting. And we will have another meeting um, with Ian and the church family members. Um, in the coming weeks, we haven't decided a date yet, um, but we will do that soon. Um, I do encourage everyone that wants to talk to Ian, everyone in the church, Questions for Ian. Um, he definitely wants to answer anything that he can. Um, I also want to thank the public committee of Herman. Um, was a great leader in there. Dolly, Diane, and Bonnie all contributed everything that we could, and it took a lot of time to get that together. Um, we were very happy with the outcome. Um, in, in full agreement with the public committee, that's that's a nice thing. So that was all awesome to see. Um, and Ian was encouraging to talk to with all the questions that we put him through. Uh, I, I think we kind of we answered them all well. So we look forward to the next step, which will be the members voting on Ian coming up. So keep that in touch. Thank you, Dean. Uh, one last announcement. Uh, is Joy to be Bald, which is actually starting today. Um, they split it out into separate events. So today there's a bake sale going on at uh, Lori's Cafe um, until 2 p.m. Um, so after church gets out, you can go there and, and feel free to buy some delicious baked goods. And that's all benefiting uh, the, uh, the Grindle family and little Addison, uh, uh, who we've been praying for, who's, who's struggling with uh, cancer. So... Uh, and there's, if you want more details on, on Joy to be Bald, Beth has them all. So talk to Beth if you're interested, because there's, in the coming weeks there's more, there's more events. There's a walkathon and a, a chicken barbecue. Um, so um, be looking for ways to participate in that. All right, I think that's it for it. 
Oh yes, Trunk or Treat is also happening, a lot happening in October. So Trunk or Treat's happening uh, on the 31st, that's a Saturday. Yeah, we, um, we need more people who are willing to be in cars, so if you want to talk to either me or Katie about that after church, that would be awesome. And if you don't feel comfortable doing a car, that's okay, you can still buy candy for the people who want to do cars. <laughs> and we're gonna have a box somewhere so we can collect those and keep an eye on how much we have. Um, Fall festivities, yeah. So if you didn't, if you didn't hear that, um, uh, truck or treats coming up. If you're willing to set up in a car with the costume and hand out candy, please. I think there's a sign-up sheet up back. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Talk to Miranda or Katie if you're interested. And also, if 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 you're not if you're not able to do that, not comfortable um, doing that, uh, we have a great need for candy. So, bring candy. What's that? Oh, yeah, we all need candy. So. All right. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Pr uh, prayer meeting. Um, we'll, uh, because we haven't been having choir meeting on Thursday nights, we're going to shift prayer meeting to 6 p.m. Um, so that's a little bit earlier. Um, and uh, so that way we won't be out quite as late. So 6 p.m. Thursday night, we usually meet either in here or out in the fellowship hall for prayer. Um, and... You're welcome. Please, please come. All right. Um, Randy, if you could uh, come forward. Randy's going to open us up in prayer and, uh, and do our, our scripture reading for the morning. Open up with prayer. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning and worship you. Uh, we thank you that we're able to live in a country that we can worship without persecution and worship you freely. But we thank you most of all for the gift of your only, only begotten son to die for us on the cross and to provide forgiveness for our sins. We thank you for the much needed rain that we received last night. And we just thank you for all of the beauty and that you've provided for us here on earth. I ask that you be with our country, president and first lady, and may you help heal them quickly from COVID. Uh, ask that you be with Ian as he delivers the message this morning and ask that you open our minds and souls to receive the message, help us understand, uh, just help us draw closer to you. I pray all of these things in the name of Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The scripture reading this morning will be Psalm 19. Give you guys a few moments to open your Bible if you'd like to follow along. Heavens declare the glory of God, 
and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the earth. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is one is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law, law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statues of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Let's stand together. You can open up your hymnals to number 11. We'll sing, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. my 
the ushers come forward for the morning offering. Brian and Dakota come forward, please. Stand together and sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Brian, would you bless the offering? Lord, we thank you for our ability to give and our ability to give to you. We know that this all belongs to you anyway, and we're simply giving back a portion of what you blessed us with. But we do pray it would be used in the Lord's service to advance your kingdom and to bring souls to Jesus Christ. I pray this in the name of my Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You can remain standing, and we'll sing, uh, we'll sing, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. And you should have the song sheet either in your bulletin, uh, or it's handed to you, or it's in your pew. If you don't have one, raise your hand, and we'll get you one. All right. We're prepared this week. my Redeemer. There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. For my life is wholly bound to His. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing. All is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side, the Savior, He will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing. For 
We'll spend some time now going before the Lord in prayer. There are some prayer slips. Perfect. So we've got some prayer requests in the offering. Any other prayer requests that we want to bring before the Lord? Lots of hands. Terry. I wrote mine all Terry's son-in-law, son-in-law's father, Mitch, has stage four cancer. So we want to pray for him and for his family. Thanks, Terry. I wish you 
Yeah. Amen. Yeah, so Shirley asks, asks us to be praying for our, our president with the coronavirus and his wife. So we'll lift him up in prayer. Allison. Okay, he's in Florida now. Okay. So Allison's sister, Andrea, continue to bring her in prayer, and um, Allison's husband traveling back from Florida. The family of the gentleman who died today. Okay. I don't know his name, uh, but the gentleman's family, they're getting the news this morning. They're asking that. So the, the gentleman who, who passed away in the car his his family as they grieve. Anything else to bring before the Lord this morning? Yeah, yeah, we'll pray for Dottie and Luther. Dottie Thanks, Christina. <laughs> Happy birthday, Dottie. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning and we, we acknowledge that you are the King, you're the God of all creation, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. From all eternity, you are God. On this fall morning, we acknowledge that even though there's clouds over the sun, all creation shouts your praises. The autumn colors, the crisp air, and the sunshine when we're able to see it on these shortening days. Remind us of your watchful care over all creation and over us, Lord. We're thankful for your word and for your law. We're thankful for speaking to us that we can hear your voice. Thank you for disclosing your will and your ways to us, showing us yourself in your word in the person of your son, Jesus. As we look to him, in his perfect life, and as we look to your word and your perfect law, we acknowledge, Father, that we've fallen short. You've called us to love you, our God, with all our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength, to be totally devoted to you. And, Father, we acknowledge that even this past week we've fallen short of that. You've called us to love our neighbor even as ourselves, to sacrificially, selflessly love the ones around us. And we acknowledge, Lord, we've fallen short of that too. We ask that you forgive us, Lord, that even though we've wandered and strayed, you'd have mercy on us, that you'd restore all those who come to you in repentance. And according to your promises declared to all people in Christ Jesus. We know, Father, that for all those who come to you, who confess and who come into the light, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all iniquity. We pray, Father, that um, even as we lean on your grace and even as we, uh, we acknowledge this, there's, there's no righteousness of our own that we can bring to earn our way into your presence, we ask, Lord, that you would teach us to continue to live lives of increasing holiness, that you'd teach us to love 
you are God more and more every day. You teach us in increasing measure to love our neighbor as ourselves. We come to you this morning, Father, boldly in prayer with, with many things heavy on our hearts. We were aware this morning, Lord, of uh, the gentleman who passed away in a car accident. We pray for his family. We pray that as they grieve, that they might find comfort in, in you. We don't know the state of their souls, but we pray, Father, that they might find comfort from your Holy Spirit, the great comforter. We pray, Father, for Dottie and Luther, and we pray for all the firefighters and the EMTs on the scene. Uh, we pray that uh, you would help them to deal with the, that shock, what a difficult scene to walk onto. We thank you for their faithful service to our community. We pray that you'd help them, Lord, as they, um, as they walk through this. Father, we, we pray for Mitch, Terry's son-in-law's father, with stage four cancer. We, we pray, Father, your blessing over his life. We pray your presence with him. We don't know the state of his soul. We pray that he'd find comfort and peace in you as he deals with the most difficult season of his life. We pray for his family, that they too might find comfort and peace in you, that though all the world would be falling apart around them, they'd be able to find comfort and peace in you, our rock, you, the God of love. Pray that your presence would be intimately known in their, in their life. Father, we pray for all those who are sick. We think of Steve Wadsworth who continues to recover in the hospital from his surgery slowly but steadily. We thank you for the good report that we, we receive every couple of days of small pieces of progress. We thank you for the way that you've been faithful to him in bringing him to recovery. We pray that you'd bring him back here soon. Pray that you'd be with his family as they walk through this difficult season, that you'd provide them comfort as you have been, Lord. We think, as we have been, Lord, of Kevin and Kathy Coffin. Uh, we pray that you continue to give them uh, restorative rest. You'd bring them back refreshed and able to uh, continue to serve your people as they have for so many years. We think of Andrea Littlefield, Lord. We pray that you continue to help her recover, help her um, to come back to full strength. We pray for Allison's husband, Lord. We pray that you'd give him traveling mercies as he comes back home. Bring him back to, to Allison safely. We think, Lord, of uh, Shirley Freeman as she continues to struggle to breathe. We pray that you'd help her to find some resolution there. Give her energy and strength as she um, raises Devin and Dakota. Father, we think of those who aren't with us, who are alone. We think of Sue Smith, Connie Dyer, Edna Mitchell. Pray that you'd be with them, you'd comfort them, you'd help them in all their, their medical issues as well. We think of uh, the Grindle family, Lord, and little Addison. We pray that you continue to be at work. You give the doctors wisdom. Pray that you keep Addison's spirits up. We thank you for the outpouring of support that this community has um, poured out on their family. We pray that you'd show us ways that we can help and support them and uh, give us opportunity, um, even Lord, through this, the Joy to be Bald fundraiser, to be able to help them in what ways we can. Father, we lift up to you our nation in, uh, in a troubled year, in a troubled world, Lord. 
And uh, we, we think of our leaders. We pray that you'd give them wisdom and guidance, help them to rule wisely and well. We pray that your will would be done in this coming election. Father, we, um, we pray for justice, Lord, for all people. We, uh, we lift up our, our president and the first lady, Lord, uh, who have come down with the coronavirus. We pray that uh, you'd bring them to recovery soon. We pray that this wouldn't be an impediment, Lord, to his being able to lead our country. We pray that you'd give him godly wisdom. You'd surround him with godly uh, advisors, Lord, and that he'd be able to lead well. We pray for our church. We thank you for this, this body of believers that's been such an encouragement to us. It's been such a faith, faithful witness in this community for many years. Pray that you continue to give us guidance and light. Father, we pray that you'd bring revival here. You'd revive our hearts day by day and week by week in the gospel of your son. That you'd give us a zeal uh, for your mission on this earth. That you'd give us an eternal perspective, a sense of the weight, Lord, of eternity. And uh, the significance, Lord, of those who are around us who will live on for eternity, either in your presence or apart from you. We pray that you'd energize us for your mission. You give us wisdom and discernment and boldness to be able to share your gospel with those in our families, those friends around us, Lord, who are far from you. Pray that you'd be at work in their hearts. We know that revival is your work, not ours. We know that we need your spirit Lord, if we're to come to faith, then we, we know that our friends and our family desperately need your spirit to soften their hearts to the love of your son. We pray that that would happen, Lord. We ask your blessing over the rest of this service, that your will would be done, that your kingdom would come here on earth as it is in heaven. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. As we begin, I want to talk about questions. A few folks from the congregation have approached me with, with questions about scripture or about theology in the, fast, in the past few weeks, and uh, I love it. It's encouraging to see that God is at work stirring people to dig into his word and to dig deeper in, into knowing God himself. So I want to encourage you, if I ever say something in a sermon and you say, Huh? Uh, to ask me those questions. Uh, I, I love um, talking about the Bible and dealing with those questions. And even if I might not have the answer right off the top of my head, which I often don't, um, I, I love to dig into that kind of research too. So keep bringing the questions, keep asking questions. And that goes for people of, of all ages too. I'm looking at you youth, youth people. We, uh, we haven't been able to have Sunday school or youth group for, for some time. Hopefully, we'll get that started up soon. Um, but uh, the beauty of having a church where you guys get to be a part of the Sunday service um, is that even when there's not youth group or Sunday school happening, um, that you're able, you're getting a regular diet of food from the Word. And so, um, don't just sit there through the sermon twiddling your thumbs waiting for me to be done yapping. Um, <laughs> dig in, search the scriptures. Take notes and pray for God to be teaching you as we study his word. 
and ask me questions if you're like, Ian, I don't know at what you're talking about at all. I literally didn't understand a single word you said. So um, the passage to which I'd like to direct your attention this morning is Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. It comes almost as a, a side note or an afterthought. That's what it feels like in the flow of Mark's account of Jesus' ministry. But I hope to show you this morning that John's death, which is what this account will, um, will show us, the death of John the Baptist, that his death is actually an important turning point in Jesus' ministry. As we move through the account, we're going to see that John's, how John's death came about has lessons for us. It's a riveting and a somewhat shocking account, so I think the best way to arouse your interest in the passage is just to read it. We're in Mark chapter 6, and we'll start in verse 14. Actually, let's start in verse 12 just to get a little context. Mark 6, starting in verse 12. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he's Elijah. And still others claimed he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had, he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to do so because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give to you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we come to your word this morning, we wouldn't reject it with cold hearts, but that we'd accept your word with warm and open hearts. Comfort us where we need reassurance. 
convict us where we need correction. Kindle in us a hearty, glowing Christian zeal and direct that zeal into productive work for your kingdom. Teach us, we pray, by the example of your servant, John the Baptist, not to resist the clarity of your word, but instead to boldly speak the word of God into the lives of those around us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we studied the account of Jesus sending his apostles out into ministry. And the account of the disciples then returning to Jesus after their work was done. And those two accounts actually bookend the passage that we just read today. It's, a, it's another, um, one of the commentators calls it a Markin sandwich, that Mark has a habit of doing this, bookending passages like this. So those accounts bookend the passage today, which begins by recounting King Herod's reaction to the news that Jesus and his disciples were preaching and performing signs abroad. So verse 14, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Now when we encounter the name Herod in Scripture, it can get confusing because as we read through the New Testament, we encounter no less than four different Herods. Um, I'll, I'll talk about two today. Herod the Great was the first Herod to rule. He was the most powerful of the Herods. Um, and he ruled over all of Judea and Galilee, covering much of the what the Jews considered the promised land. And he was what you would call a client king. He was ruling as an underling of the Roman Empire. And he's the Herod that you meet in Matthew and Luke's accounts of Jesus' birth. So that's Herod the Great, but we're not dealing with Herod the Great here. Um, when Herod the Great died, his territory was divided between his children. And one of his children was Herod Antipas, who reigned over Galilee. So he didn't get the whole kingdom. He just got Galilee and another small area. And that's the Herod we meet here. Not the great King Herod. This is Herod Antipas, Herod the Tetrarch. So we begin the account with Herod Antipas catching wind of Jesus' ministry. And the rumor mill is turning as to who Jesus was. Verse 14 again. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he's Elijah. And others said he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. Who is Jesus? Galilee wanted to know. Some said, this is John the Baptist, resurrected. As Mark is about to recount, John was killed by Herod. And in a time before photographs, unless you'd seen both Jesus and John in person, it would have been possible to confuse the two preachers of repentance. And some were saying, Jesus is simply John resurrected. And because he was resurrected, he's working all these miraculous powers. And of course, we know this wasn't the case. We opened our study of Mark by looking at the way Jesus and John um, relate, right, to separate teachers. John had come as a forerunner, a herald of the coming Messiah, Jesus, right? In John's own words in Mark 1, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. So one speculation was that Jesus was John. Another speculation was that Jesus was Elijah or that Jesus was one of the Old Testament 
prophets. Now, what the, you might ask, why Elijah, right? Why not Moses or someone else? In Mal- Malachi 4, 5, one verse before the end of the Old Testament canon, the Lord had promised Israel this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So this is a scriptural guess. The Jews were expecting the prophet Elijah to return in some fashion as a fulfillment of this promise. And they were saying, well, maybe Jesus is Elijah. The irony of the passage is that Jesus tells us in Matthew 11 that John, not Jesus, was the Elijah who was promised. The Jews wondered if Jesus was maybe John or maybe Elijah, but not understanding that it was actually John who was Elijah and Jesus was neither. They also wondered if Jesus might have been an Old Testament prophet, like the great prophets of old. These theories were being tossed around in Galilee, but Herod had made up his mind who Jesus was, and he was terrified, verse 16. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Herod believed this false theory that Jesus was John resurrected. The rest of our passage is an explanation of Herod's words here. It's a a flashback of sorts to explain John's death at the hands of Herod. And I want you to see this morning that there's a universal principle at work in the specific events surrounding John's death. The principle is this, and this is our big idea for the morning. Those who reject the word of God oppose those who boldly speak the word of God. Those who reject the word of God oppose those who boldly speak the word of God. In a real sense, John's fate at the hands of Herod wasn't surprising or new. John was one more in a long line of those who speak the word of God and encounter opposition from those who reject the word of God. The story of the Old Testament is brimming with examples of prophets who spoke the word of God to kings and nations and were rejected, persecuted, and threatened as a result. Those who reject the word of God oppose those who boldly speak the word of God. And as we approach the study of this account of John's induction into that great hall of martyrs, I want to ask a simple question of this text. Why this opposition? Why this opposition? Why is there a perennial struggle between those who faithfully proclaim the word of God on the one hand and those who reject the word of God on the other hand? We're going to look at these two groups of people as they function in our text and squeeze out what answers we can. First, we'll look at those who reject the word of God. Why are there some in every generation who oppose the prophets? This is the first of two points, and it's simple enough that it's almost self-evident. Those who reject the word of God are threatened by God's word, so they oppose those who speak it. Those who reject the word of God are threatened by God's word, so they oppose those who speak it. And we're going to see that principle play out in the actions of both Herod and his wife Herodias. Herod and Herodias were threatened by the word of God, so they opposed the one who spoke it. Verse 17, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, 
his brother Philip's wife because he had married her. The backstory here is that Herod had married his brother's wife, Herodias. Leviticus 18.16 and 20.21 stipulate that it's a form of incest for a man to marry the wife of his living brother. Herod and Herodias were, according to the law of God, in an unlawful marriage, and so John called them out. First, verse 18, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death. When confronted with the truth of God's law, and the illegitimacy of her marriage. Herodias refused to submit to God's word and immediately opposed the one who spoke it. In the most radical terms, Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death. Herodias hated John. And you can almost see why. She had left Herod's less powerful brother, Philip, to marry Herod. Her whole lifestyle was now dependent on her marriage to Herod, she'd bet everything on this. And because of the bridges that she'd burned to get her new, richer husband, there was no going back. So you can imagine that when a prophet, popular with the people, appeared on the scene, publicly challenging the legitimacy of your marriage, you might feel a little threatened. Herodias hated John because the words he spoke were a threat. Herodias had painted herself into a corner by her sin, and she wasn't going to let some hillbilly, locust-eating preacher take her palace and position away from her. She literally wanted John dead. It's not unusual for men and women to paint themselves into a corner with their sin, feeling like there's no way out. Neither is it unusual, once you're trapped in the corner, to feel threatened by the clearly presented word of God. When we encounter the blazing reality of the God who made and rules all things and realize that we've transgressed his perfect law, that we've ignored him and rebelled against him in our thoughts and our actions, that's personally threatening. In that moment, we realize we're totally at the mercy of the one that we've wronged. And to consider the possibility of repentance of turning from sin and obeying God again, that's another threatening reality. For those who've built their life on sin against God, the prospect of the whole thing tumbling down like a tower of cards is terrifying. That's why many people, when they encounter someone clearly speaking the word of God, turn away from the messenger and even violently oppose that messenger who carries the word of God which would threaten the very foundations of their existing lifestyle. That's what Herodias did. Those who reject the word of God are threatened by God's word, so they oppose those who speak it. Herodias isn't the only guilty party here, though. Instead of opposing John in vitriolic hatred like his wife, Herod merely imprisoned John and his message. Herod had a curious interest in this man, a sense of his holiness, but this is key, without any willingness to submit to the word that he spoke. Verse 19, and Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. 
When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Herod feared John. He had a sense that this was a true prophet, a holy and a righteous man. But Mark says that Herod was perplexed when he listened to John's words, not oppositional or angry. In fact, we're told he heard him gladly. But though he was willing to grant that John was a godly man and to hear him out, he was unwilling to listen to or obey him. I think it'd be fair to say that most of the men and women who reject the word of God today don't do so with the vitriolic hatred of Herodias, but with the perplexed curiosity of Herod. For most people today, the word of God is interesting. Some people are able to recognize that the Bible is a holy book and have some level of respect maybe for Christians or for Christianity, but are unable upon hearing the word of God which challenges them to turn from sin and to trust Christ, to fully embrace any of it. We can give Herod a certain kind of credit in contrast to his wife. At least he could see that John was a righteous man, but this by no means clears him of his refusal to repent. Ultimately, he was just as unwilling to accept the word of God as Herodias was. He wasn't about to send Herodias away, the woman he'd wrenched away from his brother. Though he didn't act out in hatred the way Herodias did, he wasn't about to let his his lifestyle be threatened by John the Baptist, even if he was a prophet. Those who reject the word of God are threatened by God's word, so they oppose those who speak it. This is heavy stuff. This is heavy, and I don't want us to be discouraged. Herod and Herodias refused to repent, but but many men and women who spend their lives in opposition to God's word one day turn to God. I want to think for a moment about the Apostle Paul, who in his early life was actually killing Christians. He hated the word of God that had been revealed through Jesus. He wasn't ready to accept it. He wasn't ready to see that Jesus was the Messiah. He wasn't ready for the Jewish establishment on which he'd built his whole life to be turned on its head. He was threatened by the word of God. And yet, by the grace of God, Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, appearing to him in a flash, wrenching him out of his life of rebellion and making him eventually an apostle and one of the most important missionaries in the history of the church. And the word of God in Christ was was threatening to Paul too. It was threatening to his soul because if the Christians were actually right about Jesus, Paul would have to admit that in persecuting the church, he was opposing God. What a terrifying realization to someone who'd worked so hard all his life to be faithful to God. The word of God in Christ was also threatening to Paul's previous religion and lifestyle. In fact, when he came to believe the gospel, everything had to change. His religion, his friends, his purpose in life, his whole endeavor to make something out of himself by his obedience to the law was torn down to nothing. And I want to appeal to those of you who may, on the outside looking in, feel like Herodias and Paul, and maybe you find the word of God personally threatening. Maybe you feel like you've painted yourself into a corner with your sin. 
maybe you feel like to leave it all behind to follow Christ would be too much. Here's the good news. The gospel is personally threatening, and that's a very good thing. If Jesus was right about the human condition, there's actually a part of us that needs to be threatened. There's a part of us that needs to die. Jesus famously said to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What Jesus calls us to isn't just a minor personal reform. The gospel is personally threatening because there's a part of us that needs to die to ourselves before we can come alive in Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul, this man whose entire life was torn apart, torn down for Jesus, after his conversion was able to joyfully say in Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. On the near side of his conversion, Paul was threatened by the gospel. But on the far side of his conversion, after his death to self and new life in Christ, Paul was grateful that in Christ, part of him, part of himself had actually been threatened and died. So if you feel your lifestyle and habits of heart threatened by the gospel, if you're not a Christian, or even as a Christian, if you feel the word of God threatening parts of your life, don't run away. Don't flee from God in fear. Don't reject him in hatred. Instead, run to him in hopeful, trembling anticipation that in him, your old self, your sin and rebellion, your selfish lusts can actually die. And you can truly come to life. Come to him and die to sin in Christ so that you can be born again in him to everlasting life. The gospel is a call both to death and to life. That's why when we baptize people who come to faith, we put them down under the water as a sign of burial. Your sin has been crucified with Christ by faith in him and then bursting out of the water with joy, you've been also been resurrected with him by faith. The word of God is personally threatening. That's part of why so many oppose it, but it's exactly why we need to hear it. Our first point, again, was this. Those who reject the word of God are threatened by God's word, so they oppose those who speak it. The second point is similar to it. Those who faithfully speak the word of God refuse to compromise on God's word, so they're opposed by those who reject it. Those who faithfully speak the word of God refuse to compromise on God's word. So they're opposed by those who reject it. Herod and Herodias refused to submit to God's word, but John the Baptist refused to compromise on God's word. With prophetic backbone, in the face of the most powerful people in the province, he spoke the hard truth even when it put his life in danger. Verse 18, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. I wonder how many people in Galilee were thinking it before John out and said it. Everyone knew Herodias was his brother's wife. Everyone knew the law. 
but no one else that we know of was willing to say it. Certainly not right to Herod's face. And that's what John was doing. Verse 18, for John had been saying to Herod. Talk about boldness. Talk about backbone. What was the result? Those who faithfully speak the word of God refuse to compromise on God's word, so they are opposed by those who reject it. We've already looked at reasons for the opposition. Those who are threatened by the word of God will reject its messengers. But now I want to look more closely at John's willingness to speak truth to power, to speak the word of God without an eye to the consequences. We're not given access to John's reasoning here. We don't know how he found himself in Herod's court, telling Herod the obvious truth, which no one else dared say. All we know is what he said. One sentence. It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. The sole record of John's conversation with Herod is this simple, condemning, yet shiningly true statement drawn directly from the law of God, which pointed threateningly at the most powerful man in the province. There's a man with a titanium backbone. That's a man who refused to capitulate on God's word, knowing full well that he was risking being on the wrong side of Herod's temperamental ill will. What gives men and women backbone like that? How could a person stand in the face of such powerful opposition? Answer, absolute moral conviction. If you are convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt that the truth that you hold in your heart and the words which are about to tumble past your lips are God's words, that they align with the perfect, powerful will of God, that the stance you take is God's stance, that you're standing firm on the granite foundation of the living God, you will speak with backbone. Not just because you're oppositional. There's plenty of argumentative people out there. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, even for the weakest among us. For the Christian, a love of and belief in the word of God will brace the weak knees and the hunched backs of even the most passive personality. Because if God has said it, who are we to deny it? If God is for us, who can be against us? And if man is against us, who cares? The God who will one day judge the world at whose name every knee will bow has spoken. And if I stand on his word, what can the world do to me? Prophetic backbone stems from an absolute conviction in the authority of the word of God. So straighten your back, Christian. Stand tall. You're a messenger of the Almighty. John epitomized this backbone in his encounter with Herod. But don't think that prophetic backbone was without precedent among God's people. And don't think that it was without successors to John's truth-telling office. John was simply the latest in a long line of unpopular prophets, stretching back at least as far as Noah, who preached repentance to a rebellious people who refused to hear the word of God and ridiculed him. When Joseph recounted his prophetic dreams to his brothers, they refused to believe him. They sold him into slavery. 
When Moses brought the people out of Egypt, he faced almost continual opposition from the Egyptians first and then from the Israelites. You go on. The story of the Old Testament is punctuated by the rebellion of God's people against his prophets, refusing to hear the word of God seemingly at every turn. Listen to Stephen's words, Stephen the deacon, as he preached to the Jews in the early days of the church. Acts 7 here, I'm in verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? A commission to speak the word of God as a prophet is a guaranteed ticket to persecution. So too with John. I pointed out earlier that John came in fulfillment of uh, the return of Elijah the prophet. And there's actually some interesting parallels in the account of John's death with parts of Elijah's ministry. Elijah, of course, was a faithful prophet of God speaking a message of repentance to the northern kingdom of Israel at a time when they sold out wholesale to idolatry, the idolatry of their, their neighbors. And Elijah was opposed by Jezebel, if you remember, the wife of King Ahab, and by Ahab himself. There's actually some pretty striking parallels between these two situations. Like Herod and Herodias, Ahab and Jezebel were in an unlawful marriage. It was unlawful for men of Israel, and certainly kings of Israel, to marry foreign wives, because in almost every case, the wives led them to worship foreign gods, which is exactly what happened with Jezebel. So Elijah confronted this marriage and the idolatry of Israel and of Jezebel's pagan prophets, threatening Jezebel's lifestyle and reign. And in turn, Jezebel threateningly opposed Elijah. Apart from an act of repentance later in life, Ahab, a bit like Herod, quietly sat by and let his wife wear the pants and set her pagan agenda abdicating his responsibilities as God's man, as the king over Israel. Sound familiar? Prophet speaks against unfaithful king and queen. Queen becomes viciously angry, lashes out against the prophet of God. John the Baptist really was the new Elijah, calling God's people back to God no matter what the cost. John fulfilled Elijah's ministry of bold proclamation of the word of God, but Elijah was never killed for his ministry, of course. He was opposed, but he was never martyred. Instead, Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind to heaven. So John's death was less a fulfillment of Elijah's ministry and more a foreshadowing of the end of Christ's ministry. John came, as we've said, not only as the new Elijah, but also as the forerunner of Christ. His ministry hearkened back to the prophets, but also pointed forward to the Christ who was to come. John heralded Jesus as the Lamb of God when he baptized him in the Jordan. And here in the final act of his ministry, John was a forerunner of the Messiah even in his death. There's some real parallels here between John's death and Christ's coming death. John's death as the messianic forerunner foreshadowed the way in which the Messiah would fulfill his ministry and his death. Here, at, almost at the midpoint of the Gospel of Mark, 
We're getting a foreshadowing of Christ's death in John's death. Listen to some of these parallels. Both John and Jesus were seized unjustly. Both John and Jesus were seized unjustly at the whim of their unhappy hearers. John was seized by the Herod family. Jesus was seized by the Jewish authorities. Both of those parties were threatened by what they were hearing. Both John and Jesus were seized unjustly by a hesitant magistrate. Herod was hesitant to kill John because he knew he was a prophet. Pilate, if you remember the account of Christ's death, was hesitant to kill Jesus because he could see no fault in him. No reason to kill him other than popular opinion. Both John and Jesus were killed unjustly, and they were both killed unjustly by a magistrate's unwise vow. Verse 21, But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. What a stupid thing to do. Rulers should never hand the responsibility for their decisions to their children or to the crowds. With John in chains, Herod promised to give Herodias' daughter anything she wished. And with Jesus on trial, Pilate promised to give the Jews whichever prisoner they wished. Both rulers were hesitant to kill their prophet, but both of them bound themselves by unwise vows. Another parallel here. Both John and Jesus were killed by their hearers' malicious schemes. Verse 24, And she, Herodias' daughter, went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Bound by his unwise vow, Herod was suckered into killing John. Bound by his unwise vow, Pilate was suckered into killing Jesus when, against his expectations, the crowd called for him to release Barabbas the criminal instead of Jesus. John and Jesus were both killed by an unwise vow, a ruler's unwise vow. The pressure of the crowd is another similarity between John's death and Jesus's. Both men were killed unjustly by the pressure of the crowd. Verse 26, the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. Bound by the peer pressure of his exalted guests, Herod was bound to his vow and kept it. Notice, apart from the peer pressure, Herod wasn't going to be willing to keep his vow. So he neither had the courage to stand up for the prophet or the decency to keep a vow, except for the, pro- the uh, pressure of his guests. Bound by the pressure of the enormous crowd, Pilate later would soon be bound to his vow and would keep it, sentencing the innocent Christ to a violent death. In a final parallel between Messiah Jesus and his forerunner John, both men were buried by their disciples. Verse 29, 
When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Joseph of Arimathea buried his teacher just as John's disciples buried theirs. It was John here, but soon it would be Jesus, courageous proclaimers of the word of God, slain for their boldness in bringing the word of God into the world like so many prophets before them. Those who are threatened by the word of God oppose those who boldly speak the word of God. It's true in Noah's day, in Moses' day, in Elijah's day, in John the Baptist's day, and in Jesus' day. As we come to a close of the study this morning, I want you to consider for a moment God's purpose in sending his prophets to a people he knew wouldn't hear. Here again are the words of Stephen the deacon in his speech on the eve of his own death at the hands of those who rejected Jesus. Acts 7, verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, the coming of Jesus, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. The betrayal and murder of Jesus the Christ was the last in a long string of opposition from those who reject the word of God against those who boldly speak the word of God. In many ways, the cross looked like a victory for those who reject the word of God and the kingship of God over the world. After persecuting the prophets against the ages, their seemingly ultimate victory was to crucify the incarnate son of God, the king who had come back to win the world. In the war to oppose those who speak the word of God, what greater victory could there be than to silence God himself in human form by killing him on a Roman cross? Question, was Jesus' death a blunder on the part of the Father? Was the cross an unfortunate mistake? No. Listen to the Apostle Peter's words in his sermon at Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of God of lawless men. What seemed to be the ultimate victory for those who oppose the word of God was in fact a fate decreed according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The father more than allowed Christ to die at the hands of those who opposed him. Jesus' death at the hands of sinners was the very reason he came. The height of his purpose, the climax of his story, the center of his kingdom-winning mission, and he knew it. As the powers of darkness gathered like vultures to mock his death, Christ prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane on the eve of his arrest and death. John 12, verse 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? 
but for this purpose I have come to this hour. What those who opposed Christ thought was their greatest victory was in fact in God's perfect and eternal master plan for the salvation of the world, their greatest defeat. According to the writer of Hebrews, Christ himself likewise partook of flesh and blood that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In opposing Christ to his death, the enemies of darkness found themselves victims of their own weapons. In wielding death against the author of life, Christ destroyed the one who has the power of death and delivered all those who believe in him from the power of death and the clutches of Satan's lies. The wonder and the irony and the beauty of the cross was that in dying at the hands of sinful men, Christ won life, freedom from sin, and eternal fellowship with the Father for all those who believe. Praise God. Praise him for his mercy. Praise him for the cross. Who is like our God? The opposition of sinful men and women against the prophets should not lead us to despair, but instead to look to Christ. The opposition which Jesus encountered had been appointed by the Father from all eternity for his saving purposes in saving you. God has a way of turning suffering into glory, of turning opposition to his word into fuel for his mission. Peter's sermon again in Acts 2. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Down in verse 36 now. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That promise is the promise that we bank on as Christians. That all who repent of their sin, who believe on and are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ can be forgiven of their sins, reconciled with God, and spend eternity with Him. The gospel we proclaim, the cross of Jesus, came by the hands of those who opposed the word of God. In opposition to the word of God, God found his greatest victory. That's the gospel we celebrate and proclaim. That's what we're gonna celebrate in a few moments here at the Lord's table. We'll have um, uh, Dean and Luther, if you'd be able to help serve communion this morning, that'd be great. If you guys can both come up. The Lord's Supper is a gift from Jesus. 
He left it to the church and he told us to do it. And Christians all around the world, even now, are gathering with each other on Sunday and breaking bread and drinking the cup together as a way of taking part together in Christ's body and blood. We use um, bread and wine because that's, or in our case, juice, because that's what Jesus told us to use. It's an outward sign of an inward grace. We who have come to faith in Jesus have spiritually and inwardly taken part in Jesus' body and blood. His death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead have won for us forgiveness of our sins. In Jesus, we have final justification, adoption into the family of God, and life forever with God. So we, we're gonna eat the bread and drink the cup outwardly and physically in the way that we can touch and taste as a way of remembering all that Jesus has done for us, all that we are in him, and as a way of proclaiming his death until he returns. And the communion table is open to all who have professed faith in Jesus Christ. And if that's you, you're welcome at this table. If that's not you, know that this table is open to all who would come to Jesus in faith. And if it's your desire to pursue a relationship with God by faith, please talk to me or one of the deacons or any Christian here after the service. We'd love to talk to you more about what it means to put your faith in Jesus. But for now, we'd ask that you refrain from eating and drinking at the table. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, warns that whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. This is a joyful celebration of the gospel of Christ, but it's to be taken seriously by all those involved. And there are some in the Corinthian church who were taking it lightly, and they were coming to the table with division and dissension among them. And so if you have something against your brother or your sister, um, you can refrain from the table. This is a table of fellowship. After we eat and drink, we're going to gather in a circle. Well, we're not going to gather in a circle. I'm sorry. We're just going to stand in our places, and we're going we're to sing a song of thanks to God. Uh, I think the number for that is actually in the bulletin, if you want to find that in the hymnal and you're not familiar with it. Before we go to the table, I just want to read a brief passage from John chapter 6. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Let's proclaim together the life that we have in Jesus' death and resurrection. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Praise the Lord. Amen.
Christ Jesus, our Savior, died. He was risen from the dead, and He's coming again. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's stand together. Gladi, could you start us and thank, uh, thank you, Lord? Thank you, Lord, for saving my Fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.